Thank you. Thank you, Doug, too, jumping in. Not Tommy, but we'll take you. Tommy, down and out, that dang virus that's been going around for the last three years, as is another elder and wife, so let's be in prayer, mild symptoms, but nonetheless quarantining. Uh, Our friend Bob Benson is in emergency hip surgery right now, has an infection that came. Many of us have prayed for him, with him, successful hip transplant, was doing well, and now an infection. Uh, Sounds like doctors are hopeful and, and are know what to do, um, but that's discomforting and not well, right? So prayers for Bob and Gloria as she obviously is caring for him and concerned. It just feels like, I mean, I'm I'm not missing the irony as we enter into a section of Scripture on plagues, destruction, (laughs) illness, devastation. Oh, man, we look into our world, we see that, and and we're going to take this at a a high level, and we're going to see Essentially, what always happens, a story, a microcosm uh, of the state of our world. But it's hitting a little more closely to home when we sense um, plagues striking us and enduring and what that means. So, a little tongue-in-cheek, but our heart definitely goes out to those uh, in need. And, and that's more. There's certainly more, I'm sure, that are struggling, that need the healing touch and shalom of God to meet them. So, as you feel led to pray uh, and respond, if this is... If you're becoming aware of, of those with this kind of prayer need, you know them, reach out, text, prayer, email, phone call, visit. Um, those are good things. So we'll visit where you can, maybe not with those that are fighting that virus, but show them that you love them. I said there would be a big announcement today. Does anyone remember that? Raise your hand if you came in remembering that. Oh, hey, a few. That's good. I hung out a teaser last week that this would shape uh, some of our summer, and it's, it's maybe twofold. One is for sure, uh, trusting that our plans are the Lord's plans and continue, and then one is up in the air that I'm going to invite you to pray uh, about. This September will mark my 14th year anniversary as lead pastor of Union Hill Church. Unbelievable. Uh, it became a rhythm early on, even in those first few years, a commitment of the elders at that time to put in a sabbatical rhythm for their lead pastors, not just with me in mind, but just in general. How do we bless and, and encourage and help our pastors stay, stay renewed? And, and we followed kind of that, that rhythm of six and in the seventh, right, of Sabbath years or taking a Sabbath that we have the sense of uh, building a sabbatical after six years of labor, so to speak, a gift of time away at some point in that seventh year. And so in 2016, I was able to take seven years by the gift of the elder, seven weeks by the gift of the elders. It felt like two weeks, so it didn't feel like seven years. And it was a renewing time. And this year is in that 14th year, after another six years. It seems to have flown by. A lot has happened in these Six years. So really, we've, this is something the elders have been working on for months now. Is this, is this the right season? Nothing, nothing needs to be locked into, um, into, written into stone here, uh, but we do want to be faithful to that rhythm. So the gift is being offered, the extension uh, through all of you as members uh, to give me eight weeks this summer, starting the week after Father's Day, which is just over a month away on, on June 18th, uh, running for the next eight consecutive weeks into August.
So we have some plans already in place. One of the things that confirmed that was, well, if we could find a pastor who would come in and could preach and bless and serve as pastor on call, so to speak, um, and immediately I thought of my close friend, Scott Brewer, who's retiring from Meadowbrook Church in Redmond, who just retired after 33 years planting that church and serving faithfully in Redmond. Uh, I've known him for over 20 years. We've met monthly for the last 13. Uh, we've retreated together. We've done ministry together. And so I called him up, and this was kind of a test. It was, if, if Scott might say yes to a, a number of those weeks, maybe even half of those weeks, that could be confirmation, because uh, bringing in a bunch of different guest preachers, asking some of you who preach to fill in, is, is a lot of work uh, on the front end and during. And Scott said, I'll take all eight. Oh, wait a minute. I am going to be gone on July 9th. I, how about seven? And so he's thrilled to come. He's like, man, after retiring, he's on vacation right now. To be able to step, come back into a ministry context without the same weight of leading a church, but stepping in to do something he loves, to preach, to teach, to be on call with the elders if necessary, if pastoral needs come up, to work with Tommy and just service planning. Uh, so you will be blessed. Uh, please don't say, oh, Ben's gone. We'll take more vacation this summer. Be here and receive from another voice from one wiser than me with an amazing heart. He's transitioned so well. Very few, very few guys in general uh, end well, finish strong. He's still well, he's still capable, and he's, he's stepping away, I think, at the right time, let alone an original church planter serving for three decades in one context. There's much you will glean. So we're going to be blessed by that. He'll step in uh, that week after Father's Day. I think that's June 25th and be preaching most of those Sundays. On July 9th, we're planning a joint service at 10 o'clock with Jesus Cristo El Rey. And Pastor Jose is planning to preach, and we'll have a combined music team and hopefully a combined potluck that day after service. We'll bump our regular first Sunday uh, to that second Sunday on July 9th. So that's a great one to circle on your calendars. If you're thinking about summer plans still, uh, be around for that one if you can. Uh, I bet the food will be great. The service will be great. It'll be full of energy. It'll be unique. And so that will shape much of our summer. More questions on that and details, come to the elders, uh, come to me. We'll talk more about it at our annual meeting on, on June 4th, if needed. Uh, that'll be a great place to interact together as a community on that, of what to come for summer. But I'm inviting you to lean into that, uh, to step in and help where you can. Obviously, we're trying to have Catherine come with me in much of that, maybe not all of it, because uh, she does love to lead music, but to give her a great break would be awesome. So we're asking those to step in, uh, to serve more. We're inviting you, if you haven't served in our kids' ministry, uh, we would really like to cover the kids' cla class. For summer, we're just looking for activities, for fun, for someone to be present with the kids, uh, to make it a good time uh, during the summer. So pretty low, lower bar than stepping in to maybe teach a lesson or a class, uh, but just to, to be present. So if that's something you could do once a month or a couple times over that eight weeks, even if you're not committing to going into the fall in our kids' ministry, we'll still try to recruit you. Uh, but could you consider stepping in? I know we have recruited at least one, if not two, uh, to join that team. And so thank you for responding. We do have a high need with our kids when they are here. Dan is getting at my attention because we need a swap. Is this not working? It's fuzzy. Everyone's been texting. And I can't hear. It's fuzzy online. Thank you. Give me a, either a, a, a thumbs up or a no. I, I see a, a head shaking. A, he, Thumbs sideways. All right, I trust you to, if you're listening online and it's not coming through clearly, we're doing our best. 
We'll try to rectify that if possible. The second piece of that announcement of what might happen, we've been in prayer for another church in Redmond, Mountain Ridge. Uh, Ray Hyun's church also planted that church 22 or three years ago in Redmond, has faithfully served. They are meeting in, a, in a, renting a space behind Pomegranate Restaurant down in Redmond. They've been there for uh, over a decade, I believe. Uh, they are losing that space. There's just simply no way they can continue to take the lease. It's increased exponentially, as you can imagine. They've prayed extensively. They've looked at all options, and they are going to step out of that space. And that leaves them uncertain of what the future holds for them as a church. They want to remain together. Uh, we're a small community. They are a small community. Uh, I have walked with Ray, as I have with Scott, over these many years. He's a close friend, and I and we as elders have invited them uh, to come with us for at least a season. They're still praying about that, uh, what that would look like, but we think we have space for another 30 or 40 to come and to be with us. We know if they did that, maybe not all would come, that that's a big transition for a church, but a church is not a building, a church is a people. And so we are just inviting. We said, let's explore this together. Uh, certainly before you choose to close doors as a church, unless that was a sense of the Spirit, and that's not what Ray is sensing, that's not what their leaders want to see. Uh, we are offering that space. So would you pray for them first, and then for just the Spirit's lead with, the, with, with two congregations, even coming to share a space to share in Sundays only, if that's what it turned out to. Uh, but we are even praying more deeply. Is there a potential of becoming one church in this coming season. It'd be something that we would pray and talk about, pursue, not do immediately. There's a lot to that. Neither of us have ever done that, considering bringing two churches together. But I love Ray. I love his heart. Uh, they are amazing people here in Christina. Uh, some of you know them. Uh, he's preached here even years ago. Uh, so please pray for Mountain Ridge and what they might do. At the end of June, they are stepping out of that space, so it would be interesting if I'm on sabbatical and another church congregation is coming in, but Ray and Scott are extremely close, and Scott has said, hey, Ray, you need a break too. If this happens, I'll take your people. I'll take everyone this summer. <laughs> you get a break. Come and receive. I'm looking forward to just blessing whoever is in the room uh, so something is happening, something is stirring, and it's going to be an interesting summer one way or another. So there's the big announcement that I teased because I knew I didn't have time for it last week. It was Mother's Day, and uh, it's good stuff. I hope, I hope there wasn't anxiety around it. I think it's all good. We're looking forward to the summer. And if those two things happen, then I'm going to be away saying, gosh, I wish I was there. There's something unique happening, and I will be watching or following along online because I love Scott, and it'll be fun to see uh, what God leads to his heart. And so pray for him, too. He doesn't know yet what he's preaching and what, where, what direction he's being led, so uh, pray for him as he comes in to care for one congregation, maybe two, over the course of this summer. Again, lots of questions might come up. Talk with the elders. Uh, we're still praying. We're seeking. We're looking for uh, guidance and God's, God's leading in God's direction. All right, knowing that was a long announcement, kind of spacing out our, our morning, I wrote one message this morning on three chapters, the plagues of Egypt, starting in Exodus chapter 7. So if you have devices or grab a Bible, they're there on the, on the stands on the side. Exodus chapter 7 begins this incredibly challenging passage, and I think I'm going to split it into two today and try to figure out how to do that. Here's the reason that 
I'm not preaching one sermon for every 10 plagues. I think there's been preachers throughout history who have done that. Maybe this preacher would have done that, let's say, 10 years ago. Um, That sounds like hell on earth. Now, many have said that the plagues in general are a warning, broadly speaking, of what happens, the the consequences of, of sin, of hardening hearts against God, ultimately the consequence of his judgment and his wrath. Now, there may be a piece of it in that, but I can't imagine inviting you to endure 10 weeks of that, nor do I intend to do that. So I think it was, I think it was a great overview sermon, a little longer than I've preached recently. So I think you'll be grateful that I am splitting it into two parts. Let's see if I can dice it up just a little bit. We can learn a lot from this plague narrative about God, yes, about the hardness of the human heart, seriousness and consequences of sin, but I'd like to invite us to see it from a 10,000-foot perspective, 10 plagues from a 10,000-foot advantage point. What do they actually reveal? What can they possibly teach us? What difference could it possibly make in our lives? I am stepping in to this this message, and maybe next week's message as well, with the assumption, it's never great to assume, but the assumption that you have a working knowledge at least of this story, maybe not down to every detail of the plagues, maybe you couldn't name them in order, that has zero importance, I hope you can't, because that would indicate that you grew up in an environment that enforced you to memorize parts of scripture that weren't vital, and took the time and the energy to do that instead of focusing on the vital parts of the story of God, of his love and pursuit of his people, of his redemption and renewal of all creation. But if that was you, you're now wrestling going, gosh, what, what was that? What did that mean? But I am operating because I've invited you to be reading this story ahead. I've said many times we're not going verse by verse in this story like we do in other parts of Scripture, which I'm prone to do. I'm inclined to do. There's so much here. This is hard for me as I've been reading and studying, to not go down into some of the details because this is a beautiful, literary passage of Scripture. There's a rhythm to it. There's a flow to it. There's three groups of three plagues followed by the tenth culminating. Each three follows this parallelism in style and in structure. Pick up a Bible commentary. There's charts. I mean, there's things that I would love to bring to you if this was a Bible class. I like that. I am a teacher. I'm going to work hard to step back into the 10,000 foot. Know that there is so much more there. I want to summarize the story at least to a point because probably some are walking in or tuning in without having read uh, this story. And if I am preaching this next week, then I'm inviting you to read 7 through 12 at least once or listen to it on on a Bible app uh, sometime this week to get kind of re-familiarized with this extended passage because we won't pause to read all of it. I'm going to be highlighting parts uh, that I hope will land and make sense, but they'll make more sense if you are aware of them. So to summarize, everything in the story has been leading to the deliverance of God's people culminating after these 10 plagues when Pharaoh finally relents after incredible suffering, devastation, unnecessary pain that takes place into his own life, clearly into the lives of the Egyptians, even impacting Israel itself. 
God will deliver his people. Israel had been living in Egypt for four centuries at this point, having, having come under, under the authority of Joseph, if you know that story from the book of Genesis. God's family, Jacob, named Israel, and his 12 sons come and find refuge in Egypt. They'd remained ever since. Maybe for the last century or so, they've been under oppression. They've become enslaved people. That likely wasn't true for the entirety of their, their 400-year stay there. But at this point, they're under harsh, oppressive rule by the current pharaoh. This is now the second pharaoh we meet in the story, much like the first. God has a plan. God is not absent, though it may feel like it. God calls Moses. He meets him and he calls him to be his mouthpiece, to be his deliverer, to come confront Pharaoh and to lead his people into the wilderness where they will be formed into God's people, ultimately then back to the promised land where they will represent him as a nation, as a people unto all the earth. That's God's plan. He will bring it about. It doesn't seem to be going the way that the enslaved people Israel would want it to go. They wrestle, they struggle. We see Moses in that place too, questioning God, doubting God. Why me? Send another. God ultimately does not relent on his call to Moses, but he says, okay, I will commission your brother Aaron to go with you, to speak for you where necessary. He will ultimately be raised up to become like the first high priest of God's people, but they, you will see them leading it together and revealing God's will together. This is maybe just a brief summary of where we get to this point. God's ways, and especially his timing of fulfilling his promises, intervening in the suffering of his people's lives, is often baffling to us, and it somewhere falls on the spectrum of confusing to completely aggravating. And so the story invites us to question God, just as Moses was. It says God is big enough for this. God is big enough for our questions, our uncertainty. It's, how, it's one way that we can enter into the story. We look into our world or even into our own lives and we see uncertainty or pain or suffering or oppression of peoples or hardship and we say, God, why? Why aren't you intervening now? We know you can. We're reminded that God is not absent but that often his ways and his timing we struggle with. We don't see as he sees. We're not to give up or just to yield a quick, well, you're God, I'm not. We are to wrestle with it, to engage with it, just as Moses and Israel did. We won't be able to answer the questions that come up from the, this plague narrative the way that we would be settled by. God, why? Why this way? Why would you send pain or destruction or even death I think there's another way to rightly see it if we'll walk through it with an open heart. But we won't come to perfect clarity. In fact, understanding God's story better does not mean that we see it more clearly, but that we walk with it more faithfully. What grows in us is a faith, holding the tension of God's promises with his methods. We wrestle. 
Let's begin at this 10,000-foot level. If you've flown over an ocean, I'm guessing most of you have on a, at least a, a cloudless section of an ocean, at some altitude, the waters just look blue. But if you were on a boat on that same ocean, your experience would be very different of the ocean, depending on the swells, depending on the waves. Sometimes the scriptures are like that too. From close up, they seem choppy and uncertain. <laughs> Maybe we need another vantage point. Maybe you've only engaged this story, the plague narrative, kind of from up close, in the midst of it, imagining as it's natural to do. What would it be like for all water to be turned to blood, for millions of frogs to invade, or, or gnats, or flies, or the, the weather to be upended, for hail, for boils, for darkness we enter in kind of with that plight and we wonder what it could be like. That's often how we read much of Scripture in the narrative form. What would it be like to be there? Did that really happen? What was, it, what was God teaching? What was God doing? If we step back and look at it from a big picture, what do we need to see? What do, does the author or later authors of this story want us to see? Something big, big like the ocean. But maybe, maybe from a 10,000 foot perspective will have more visibility and understanding and application to it. As I mentioned, these plagues are described in an orderly, systematic, literary way. That's not saying they didn't happen or didn't happen in this order. It's saying the authors were intentionally trying to get, get us to see a rhythm, a flow here. Ultimately, a God orchestrated one but they were writing something that had with much more interest in the theological application, who is God and what he's doing, than on the historical accuracy. We've seen that throughout this story. They're less concerned with recording an accurate history as opposed to teaching a message about who God is theologically. And so we rightly would receive it that way. A couple quick broad sweeps. And this is where I'm going to start splicing, I think. These plagues increase in severity. I think that's fairly obvious. We see, for, I mean, significant from the beginning. God's authority and power is clear. But from annoyance, disruption, maybe extreme di disruption to life, up to devastation and ultimately death. They increase in this severity. And we're to notice that. We're to notice that God is at work in all of this, perhaps, perhaps allowing repentance and change to take place before death and destruction comes. It's not overnight, it's not immediate. We are also supposed to notice how this is a reversal of the creation order. If, if there's one major theme that we've seen throughout Exodus, this is not a new story in the Bible. This is a continuation of the same story that began in Genesis, ultimately back at the garden of his perfect creation. We've seen those connections again and again. The authors are intentional. This is a reversal of creation. God influencing, now bringing chaos out of order. At creation, he brought order out of chaos. Through the waters, through the land, through every creature that crawls and hops and jumps across the land, to the skies themselves, to the heavens and the earth, and even under the earth. This is a reversal of creation. The authors were intentional about that, to show us this is what is happening. 
There's also a clear demonstration of God's authority, not just over all creation, but in opposition of Pharaoh. He was often called a son of Rach or Rech, the sun god, one of their highest gods, the Egyptian deity. God takes over, right? God shows that Pharaoh cannot stand. His magicians and sorcerers, who at first are able to reproduce some of the same signs somehow, ultimately fail and cannot even stand in the presence of Moses and Aaron. When the boils come, the scriptures directly say they cannot stand any longer in their presence. They're on the ground. God is lowering and humbling, bringing, bringing all powers in Egypt to their knees before him. God alone is sovereign and authoritative and in complete control. This is a story about God's majesty as much as anything else. These teach us, these plagues at a 10,000 foot level teach us not just what happened. We must ask what always happens. What are we meant to see? And I've preached like this often. What are we meant to see that is the same story throughout history, ultimately. In this way, it's an allegorical history. It's less important answering the question, did this really happen exactly like this? And more important to answer, what does this teach us about God? His presence and involvement in the world, the fulfillment of his promises, and his desire for his people. So I could say it this way, the plagues don't need to be 100% historically accurate to be 100% true. Theologically, to be inspired by God as a story. So wrestle with that if need to. That'd be great fodder to wrestle through and converse in life groups on. We've already seen repeatedly in this story this desire to, re, to teach us the broader themes, to continue the story, to hold on to this meta narrative, the reversal of creation that's taking place. That starts at creation, God's perfect creation, where he dwells with his people, that ultimately is abandoned because God's people, Adam and Eve, man, woman, representing us all, it's not just what we would have do, done if we were in their shoes. That doesn't work, does it? But it's what we've all done. That's also the picture of creation and and. Some have called it the fall or, or the rebellion or the brokenness. Whatever took place when Adam and Eve ate of that fruit, they were signing a new contract. Today we would sign a contract with the enemy. Not God's way, your way. They ate the fruit. They took within themselves something that God said is not for you. They ate from another tree. They believed a lie. They questioned, is God really good? This is how we enter into that story. We know it in our heart. God, if you are really good, how could this be? Whether that's personal or it's looking out into the world. I don't know if I can trust you. I don't know if I can follow you if this is who you are. From, again, from my perspective, this tree over here looks good. And maybe it's not even a, I still want this tree. But this one also, because that seems good too. God, are you withholding? 
Or God, I can't trust you. I must do things my way. It's the way it's always been in our human heart, our nature. Now, you don't get to choose to eat from other trees from your perspective that you believe are going to bring greater clarity, more life, and still go back to the tree of life. It doesn't work that way. There's consequences saying, I'll do it my way. And so we turn, and we see what always happens. This is what I'd like to present for you. That these ten plagues, this narrative, is what always happens when men and women turn away from God, his presence, his goodness, his life, his abundance, the invitation to co-rule with him in his way and his will and find life and life to the full. When we turn away from that, ultimately out of a thirst for our own advancement, power, control, we walk out of the garden. This is what happens. There's severe consequences. The earth and all that is in it is upended. Now, seemingly, these plagues happen over the course of days or weeks. We're not given time stamps on them, but they kind of flow like that. Like this is an interaction battle uh, between the gods with Pharaoh and, and Moses and Aaron, and maybe some weeks go by. Is that a microcosm for what happens across history? That ultimately, greater and greater devastation and destruction and brokenness and ultimately death takes place as we pursue, humanity pursues its own way and its own will apart from God and his kingdom. And yet God, so that's the, that's the bad news, that's the discouraging news. The good news, the gospel steps in and says, that's not the end of the story. God will not let it be the end of the story. God will continue to provide a way to invite repentance, awareness, confession, eyes being open, hearts being softened, not hardened, for any that will ultimately stand under the blood of the Lamb. Renewal, a recreation of sorts in God's salvation is offered. Creation will be upended as a ultimately a natural course of what has been chosen by all of humanity, by us. But God will not let that be the end. Though there will be much pain and brokenness and destruction for those that continually harden their heart against God and against returning to him. But the offer is there. The offer is there for Pharaoh, for all of Egypt, for all Israel, for Moses and Aaron, for all of us. This is how we see that in the same narrative, Pharaoh repeatedly hardens his own heart. And the text says God hardened the heart of Pharaoh. Could it be simply that Pharaoh's heart was like a lump of clay, been suggested before, and the closer he gets to proximity to God and his authority and his power is like coming to that sun as a piece of clay, feeling the heat and hardening that God is not actively hardening as much as his presence is simply hardening a heart that is already of a substance against his. Hold us in that tension of going back and forth. Pharaoh chose to harden his own heart. It says Pharaoh continued to sin against God, and it's unclear 
whether the sin was his own hardening of heart to God's offer of repentance or whether the sin was his hypocrisy. His saying, you may go, get out, I allow, and then doing the opposite in the next moment. And perhaps both are incredible descriptions of sin at its core. The willful hardening of, the heart of, the, of our heart against God's invitation to be with him, confess, to draw back into his presence and the hypocrisy. Yes, I will, God, and especially in times of heat and suffering, God, I'll do anything to save, having no intention to ever truly change. Perhaps a much better description of sin at a heart level than just the actions we might do or the words we might say. An attitude of the heart. God in his grace and his mercy and love will always provide a way. Right now, our world sits in a place of seemingly great division, destruction, suffering. But there is opportunity given for repentance for all who would stand under the blood of the Lamb. We'll focus more on that Passover picture, which is so powerful and obviously so vital in the role of Christ as he steps in to that place as ultimate Savior and Deliverer. I'll walk us through, maybe next week, Christ's ministry and how many parallels there are as he comes and upends the creative order with the water, his provision, his healing touch. He upends and suspends or maybe even brings it back to a place of shalom in such a powerful way, a recreation of sorts. As the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, for all who are in Christ, they are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Jesus is making all things new. He is renewing and bringing life where there is death. He is the light into the darkness. We'll see some of these great themes coming together. We could also see that God's sovereignty and his power over all, all deities, over all powers, over the sorcerers, over Pharaoh. His power is just as clearly seen, if not more so, as he alleviates the plagues, as he stops them and ends them. We notice that the magicians only are able to reproduce them. They're never able to stop them. Only God can enter in and cease suffering, alleviate sickness, bring light into the darkness, bring the natural order of his will and way back to place, to restore the garden, 